Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening. Welcome to LSE, to the Middle East Centre for this event, this book launch. My name is Robert Lowe. I'm Deputy Director of the Centre and a very warm welcome to you all, both in person. Thank you all for coming out tonight here to LSE and to our friends and colleagues online who are still joining in ever increasing numbers. Thank you. So uh, welcome to the event. The running order for tonight is pretty straightforward. We have an hour in total. Francis, uh, I think very sensibly, didn't want to give a big, long, boring paper. He wants to keep it snappy and interesting. So uh, he's going to keep his remarks fairly brief. Uh, he and I may have a bit of Q&A, a few discussion points uh, to rattle things along, and then we'll open it up to the audience uh, pretty quickly, really, because we want to get you involved as soon as possible to get your questions and comments, uh, both from those of you here and those of you online. Um, when we move to Q&A, indeed, even before we move to Q&A, for those of you who are following us online, uh, please type a question into the Q&A box on Zoom. Uh, put it in the Q&A, not the chat. Uh, if you put it in the Q&A, uh, we'll roll through them and we'll get those questions put to our speaker. Please note this event is being recorded. And I also need to make you aware that you have flyers for the book. Uh, there is a discount on these from CUP. You can buy it through the CUP website. Uh, the discount code is going into the Zoom chat box for online attendees. Um, this event, as well as being one of the Middle East Centre's public events, is part of the Kurdish study series, which we run. We run a number of events every year. This is the first one we've held this academic year. And we're very pleased to announce that we will also be hosting a conference, a large public conference on Kurdish studies in April of next year. And this will be, uh, everyone's warmly welcome to attend and indeed to submit papers. We'll be sending out information about this soon. So please look out for that. Right, I think those are all the housekeeping details. So a very well welcome to Francis O'Connor, who's gonna speak on understanding insurgency popular support for the PKK in Turkey. Francis is currently a Marie Curie postdoc fellow in rural sociology at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Good enough. His uh, research is addressing the gray area between violent and non-violent mobilization, particularly focusing on the relationship between insurgent movements and their supporters. And his current project looks at the spatial dynamics of insurgent support in the cases of the PKK in Turkey and the M19 in Colombia. Francis is also a member of the Centre of Social Movement Studies at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence, um, a member of the International Expert Network for Right-Wing Terrorism and Violence in Western Europe dataset, and he sits on the academic, so the advisory academic board for the commentaries. Francis has published on insurgent movements in Turkey, Mexico, and Colombia, anti-austerity protest in Europe, lone acts of radicalization, and social movement mobilization in secessionist referendums. And thank you so much for joining us here tonight to launch your book. Floor is yours. Thanks, Francis. Uh, so thanks a lot to everyone for coming. Uh, if there's any, if I'm speaking too fast, so you don't understand, we're a small group, so we can we can be a little bit less formal. Uh, uh, so I'll go just briefly explain a little bit the logic of the book and where it came from. So it was my original intention was to look at patterns of support for our movements, and I wasn't looking at the PKK at all. When I started my PhD with uh, Donatella della Porta in the, in the EY in Italy. Uh, and then through a series of happenstance, coincidence, uh, I got interested in, in the Kurdish movement. Uh, I was, and this was in 2010, so long before we'll say, this wave of Kurdish interest that has driven Kurdish studies in the last 10 years. And I noticed in 2010, didn't have very much written about 
the Kurdish movement, the PKK in specific, more Kurdish issues, more broadly, a little bit more. So I started to look at that, eventually dropped my other comparative case and focused on the PKK. This came very much from a social movement background, contentious politics. This was in the, the aftermath of the big discussion on dynamics of contention. So this was the kind of theoretical environment I was working on. Uh, and then parallel to, so I defended my PhD, uh, then forgot about this book, just left it, worked on different things for three years, and then restarted to work on it from 2017 to 2021. In the meantime, so my, my main interest was how armed groups win support, how they maintain it, and how they lose it or not. And the interesting thing about the PKK from a theoretical perspective is, if you look at the literature on armed movements, there's, it's a, in almost universally, when armed movements decline in military strength, they also decline in political strength. But if you look at the PKK, which was, I think most people would agree, at its political or its military peak, in around 1992, 93, and then uh, in decline since, uh, its political strength has grown. So it's kind of a paradox. This is, an, I want to understand why the PKK continued to maintain its political support, even in the context where it couldn't protect its uh, supporters. My main argument in short was that, and I mean, my book is relatively limited in scope. I mean, it doesn't explain everything about the Kurdish conflict. It only looks at the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I did that quite deliberately because I feel, especially at the time, this wasn't a period that was particularly well studied. And it only looks at Turkey and it doesn't look at the diaspora, doesn't look at Syria, Rojava, Southern Kurdistan and so on. So in short, my main argument was that the PKK was very careful not to, to maintain its, pop, its, its support and it, through its constituent, what I call the, its insurgent constituency using the work of Stefan Maltana. Um, so it was very careful not to push its supporters too far, respect its normative expectations, and in a kind of a learn through its mistakes over the years. Uh, and in summary, my I think the PKK remains a movement as strong as it does as it is today, less because of its specific leadership qualities or less because of its uh, military tactics, but much rather how it managed to incorporate to maintain its, its periphery, to maintain the margins of support and integrate this into the movement continuously. And this is the main theoretical summary of my book. I look at the book in before the, the, the coup d'etat, there's a chapter, and then it describes the process of how after the coup, the PKK re-emerged and would say became to the forefront of the uh, Kurdish mobilization in Turkey. And then I look at how the PKK won support in rural areas. And then I look at Kurdish cities. And then I look at Kurds in Western Turkey. But at the same time, I'm critically engaging with these kind of spatial constructs because the countryside in Kurdistan was in a period of a few years in this mass forced displacement of millions of people. It was the countryside was found right in the city. So this notion of the urban and the rural isn't, uh, I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense in the Kurdish context. And of course, then you look at Western Turkey, this step-by-step uh, -step migration from the country, from the village, that they are, uh, from the villages to the cities to Western Turkey. So that, and that's this kind of variation in its repertoires across these different spatial areas is what I looked at. And that's basically it. Uh, uh, that's the, a very short summary of what happened in it happens in the book, and I think uh, we can have. I love that's basically it. It's, it's, it's a big hefty book. It's, it's impressive too. Um, just a couple of points and questions, maybe just to kick things off and, and pick up with you. You, um, I wonder about strategies in other parts of Kurdistan, um, how they might have affected mobilization in Turkey. I appreciate the period you're talking about. There was mobilization of Kurds from Syria, 
But you want to expand and consider that side of things? Yeah, so I think uh, it is, uh, I mean, you could level the criticism that this is a form of methodological nationalism, that I am observing the borders of the Turkish state, and this isn't the, the self-identified borders of the Kurdish nation and so on. And it's true in the sense that I look at PKK in Turkey uh, almost exclusively. Uh, and this, um, um, so that's the, the first, that's what that will say, a limitation in the book, but I think you can't do everything in one book, so there's to take some small steps. Uh, a, a fair point would be that uh, it's support for the PKK was one development. This is, this is a criticism, of, uh, a fair criticism, that, uh, that without its uh, safe territories across the border, without the place where it could retreat back into other parts of Kurdistan, its dynamics wouldn't have evolved to the same way within Turkey. And that's true, but if you look at the PKK, they very, very, they have a very, very distinct pattern mobilization in Turkey. In Syria in the 1980s and the 1990s, they didn't make any effort to contest power in Syria. They relied, had a very complex relationship with the Syrian government, sometimes more allied, sometimes less. They didn't contest power in uh, southern Kurdistan. And they used these other parts of, would say their mobilization in other parts of Kurdistan to facilitate its struggle in Turkey. So if you read through their documents and their publications, there's a constant talk about pan what you could call pan-Kurdish nationalism, but in practice, there is no effort whatsoever at mobilizing in a political sense uh, in the other parts of Kurdistan, aside from recruitment, particularly in what we all now know as Rojava, where you had in the early 90s, somewhere between a fifth and a third of guerrilla fighters were Kurds from across the border in Northern Syria. So that's, there is a relationship for sure between the, the PKK's mobilization in Turkey and outside of the, would say the other constituent parts of Kurdistan, but it is, um, I think, we'll say the particular focus that I look at how they won support in Turkey is what drove the conflict there. The masses of the hundreds of thousands of supporters and people who engage with the PKK and who supported the PKK within Turkey, in my mind, would certainly be a more determining factor in how the PKK strengthened itself, consolidated itself, and resisted the Turkish state for through the 80s and 90s. Thank you. I wonder about within Turkey, other forces who were acting on the constituency, um, the PKK struggling to establish the supportive constituency, but there are many other actors also interacting in one way or another uh, with the same constituency to try to win them over. Um, you, you, you focus on the PKK constituency relationship. Do you want to expand that on these other forces who are at play then there? Yeah, okay. Uh, so essentially, when I, from a theoretical perspective, I draw very much on relational approach to social movements. Uh, <clears throat> which is the, the more recent wave of social movement theory. Uh, and of course, there are every, so the PKK's constituencies, everyday Kurdish people are also in some Turkish and other minorities. Um, uh, and this was, the, this, was the, this was the key relational dynamic of the, the conflict. But at the same time, the same Kurdish villagers, people living in Kurdish cities were also being, inter they were also interacting with the Turkish state pro-state paramilitaries, the village guards, Islamist movements, uh, standard Ita or not Italian, uh, Turkish political parties. So you have, there's, there's a much broader relational field beyond the PKK and the, the, beyond the PKK and its own constituency. So this of course shapes how the movement evolves because it, I, in this, I deal with it much more explicitly in one chapter in the 1970s where the PKK was in a period of more, intense rivalry, sometimes violent with other Kurdish movements in Kurdistan, also sometimes very collaborative uh, organization, true connections like 
true, we'll say, shared experiences that they had. And especially in the 1970s, the overlap between movements was quite strong. I mean, people were active for one movement. They'd be active for a, a PKK or Kurdish revolutionaries, as they were called, also a Kawa event. And these, from what I've, through my field work, I discovered was you had a lot of spatial variation. So when you had a stronger external threat, we'll say with um, Islamist movements or the Turkish uh, far right slash fascist uh, uh, organizations of the 1970s, they tended to be more cooperation and less um, uh, violence or tensions between them. Uh, but the notion that my, my main focus remained on say, how this relationship between the PKK and its constituency evolved over the, the, the 20 years period of the book. But it is something that I think we need to look, I would need to look more, and I am in my current project, looking at other aspects. So what exactly the, what impact does the, the emergence of institutional Kurdish political parties, HEP, DEP, HADEP, and so on, how does that influence the PKK? So this is obviously a very separate organization to the PKK. It doesn't, it's not a Sinn Féin IRA situation. These are people who come from different political tendencies, which you tend to have naturally an overlap between member people who are active in the party, people who are active in the movement. So how this evolves is also a, a part of the broader picture. But in the book, I specific, specifically focused on the PKK and its constituency because it's something that until now hasn't been, would say, more robustly addressed in the literature, at least in my understanding of what's been done on it. So that, so I mean, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it is, you have a broader you have much the, the relation field is more I, I kind of centered in on one specific relational dynamic but that's not to say that the other relational dynamics haven't influenced haven't influenced the pkk's relationship with its constituency and this reflects the spatial variation of the pkk support in kurdistan some parts of kurdistan has an immense amount of support has always had a lot of support and other places like dersin it had took a long time for it to kind of we'll say to kind of to to consolidate its presence there due to the fact that you had Turkish revolutionaries, you had Alevi revolutionaries there at the same time. So yeah, in the sense that, uh, it, in, I mean, to sum up, I look at the, this relationship and in my current project, the spatial variation of the PKK's relationship with its supporters is also a, a, a key aspect of it is the other forces acting on the same, the PKK's constituency. If I'm clear, I don't. Thank you. Maybe one more from me for now. Um, I was struck, I think, as an introduction, you comment on how the average lifespan of an insurgent movement is something like 9.6 years, and the PKK has been going for nearly 40. So taking that into you know, a broader, maybe universal comparison, can you see any uh, reasons why um, uh, the constituency support is so much more relevant or so much more important in this case? Perhaps not all armed groups have so much care over the constituency support. Yeah. Um, so I think the first point is that the vast, vast majority of armed groups self-identify as the representatives of a specific people. If they express themselves as a political armed group, which many of the, especially in our field, would do, they do care about what people think and they want to be recognized as legitimate actors. And if you look at certain groups, but of course there's massive variation. Some groups are... They're externally financed. They have specific ideological, let's say, quirks, which lead them to behave in ways which are detrimental to their own constituency. But all groups, even if you look at groups, let's say, most notorious for violence against civilians or their own, let's say, milieu, like the uh, RUF in Sierra Leone. If you look at work by William Reno, these guys, at the start of their mobilization, they wanted to be a kind of a 
a well-supported, well-liked, legitimate organization, but for different reasons, they evolved in different ways. I think one of the key ways is, and it's a big part of the civil war literature, that insurgent dependency on their supporters. So if an insurgent group is more dependent on its supporters, it tends to be less violent. So then you look at the work of um, uh, the 2007 book on resource, um, what's it called? Oh, um, the, uh, I, 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 it's okay. off the top of my head. Uh, but the, the, the degree of dependency that one has depends, uh, Joe, it varies a lot. The PKK was very dependent on its supporters because it didn't have consistent external backing. It didn't have access to uh, diamonds or emeralds or contrary to would say, some of the popular beliefs. It didn't have like thousands of tons of heroin that it was selling. So it was dependent on support. So I think the PKK is more dependent on its supporters for legitimacy, like all our movements, but also practically. So if you look at the interactions between the Kurdish movement on a micro level and how they interacted in villages in questions of if you look, we'll say paradoxically, at the end of the mid part of the 90s, where the Turkish military had started to get on top, and it really had military started to squeeze the PKK guerrilla units, they were literally at times starving because they didn't have contact with their supporters. They didn't have, they didn't have, they couldn't get food from their supporters. They couldn't get boots. They couldn't get uh, medicine. So these kind of, so the PKK was very dependent materially through the entire period on its supporters, which of course leads it to observe. To kind of preempt or to preempt the expectation of its supporters, but then at the same point, I don't want to make I don't make a rational argue, a rationalist argument. The PKK is also from these societies. From you're all familiar with the refrain of that there's a martyr in every family. These the PKK comes from Kurdish society. It has very very deep roots. And if you look at even you could say how do you measure support? I mean you can measure support by if you look at the moment I'm coding funerals, uh, PKK related funerals. These funerals in small villages, small towns, have hundreds and thousands of people, notwithstanding the threat of violence from the Turkish state. So the PKK was deeply embedded uh, through its spatial practices with the, the would say its constituency in Kurdish society. So it's not simply that they needed support from the, the masses and they want they behaved in a way that would get them more support, but because these people come from that same society and they have a shared understanding of or shared political preferences of resistance against the Turkish state. And this is particularly heightened after the coup d'etat in 1980, where you had this like mass trauma of uh, violence from the state against rural and uh, particularly Kurdistan, disproportionate to the level of violence observed before the coup. So. Thank you, Francis. It's been a wonderful start to kick things off. I think we should open up now to the room and to people online. Um, got a few questions online, which I'll take first. If anyone in the room has a question, please put your hand up and I will note you and I'll come to you next. So I'll start with a couple that come in online. Thank you for as well. Um, the first question, well, it's about the village guards. Do you want to say a bit about the village guards and the relationship you cover in the book? Uh, village guards. Uh, village guards are, the, are a huge gap in understanding of the conflict in, um, in Kurdistan. There's some nice work done. Ayhan Ishik, for example, has, has done some nice work on or is doing nice work on it, but it's a part. So the, in short, for the people less familiar, the village guards were pro-state Kurdish, pro-state paramilitaries mobilized by the state in from 1985 to fight the PKK. These guys were, and the early generation, were organized on a familial tribal basis that the army would contact or the state would contact as a village or a tribe and they'd mobilize 100, 200, 300 men together. So it wasn't individuals recruiting or would say volunteering to join the village guards. 
these guys importantly are politically i mean there there is there over the years there, there was a more political element but a lot of these dynamics of how they recruited uh, were recruited to to, uh, to fight against the pkk was less to do with opposition to the pkk but some like local dynamics so if one particular village or tribe who was fighting traditionally with the next village joined the village or was if one village would say sympathize with the pkk in the to preempt an attack by this village from what they would the pkk village they joined the village guard so you had this kind of banal everyday politics which was kind of forced into this frame of the village guards and the, the pkk's conflict uh, it, it changed over time by the late by the from the mid 1990s onwards the, the state came in and we're, you were given the option join the village guards or we're going to destroy your village which was part of this mass displacement so you have two generations of village guards which were quite different and in the early 19 in the late 1980s it was a problem for the pkk because these guys are local kurds they had large amounts of people like like men fighting men they were relatively well armed not particularly well trained but this was a challenge for the pkk uh, and from 1987 onwards you had the PKK really targeted these village guards, which resulted in a, a number of uh, fairly gruesome massacres of villages where civilians affiliated with village guards were also killed. But I make the point somewhere in my book that this was also, in a way, a kind of a, a kind of a, a learning curve for the the PKK and uh, guerrillas because they were kind of an approach. You could fight these guys. These weren't special commando units and it was a way of getting experience and the PKK through its clashes with the village guards was a much stronger fighting organization in 1990 than it would have been in 1987 and a lot of the clashes in that time were against village guards units so it's a big it's a big gap in Kurdish studies uh it was very nice work thank you Francis and another question online from Wafa asking about diplomatic relations between the PKK and Iran uh, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, I there. It's, it's not something I really have. It's not in the book, and I don't have any information on it. That's okay. Thank you. Eddie. And the last question currently from on, uh, online is from Afshin Beraman, who asks, "How did the change from an explicit aim of an independent Kurdistan to rights within Turkey change support for the PKK amongst the population?" So, uh, I say hello to Afshin there. Uh, yeah, um, I think. It's not something. It's something that's more gradual uh, than one might think. That if you and I'm literally doing this at the moment, looking through PKK documents from the late 1980s to the 1990s. Uh, so I think the first point is that the PKK was always very ideologically pragmatic. You know, it started off as a with its rhetoric was pan-Kurdish independence, unite all of Kurdistan, and then just completely, as I said earlier, kind of ignored the other parts of Kurdistan. So from the very start, it had a very, you know pragmatic approach to, we'll say, its, it's uh, ideology or goals in one way. Um, and already from the early 90s, there was different mentions that uh, not just an independent state, but they'd be happy with some form of territorial autonomy within the state of Turkey. Uh, but at the same point, then a, a few months later, you have a different declaration from the PKK, which just says, it's a colony, we want an independent state. So this was a kind of a, a process that evolved, and this would evolve through Declarations of preference for territorial autonomy would have been also messages to the Turkish state. This would have been a kind of a part of diplomatic communication, we'll say, with uh, Uzel and these kind of peace initiatives of the early 90s. So I don't think there's a point where you can say, at least not to my knowledge, where you can definitely say PKK at this point now no longer wants an independent state. 
Uh, when Telugu went to the 2000s, where you have democratic and federalism and things change. And then, of course, there's the late, I would say, the period around Ojalan's arrest. And are these, do these declarations that he made at the time, is that the actual position of the PKK or what? There was a lot of incoherence at that point. Uh, do I then this, to address the second point of the question? Do I, I don't think that the PKK became more popular because it moderated its tone to not demand an independent state. I don't, I don't think it was that PK is open for a territorial kind of compromise with the state and people would say, as I described at the start, it's political power and support expanded over the years. I don't think that would be, if, if that's what Afshin was implying in the question. Uh, so in terms of its support, I think it was much more related to how the conflict evolved, the, the brutality of the, the counterinsurgency, also how the PKK, as what, and so the argument I would like to make, how it, ref, how it changes, and I'll give a concrete example. So in the 1986, 87, PKK demanded forced conscription. Every family had to send someone to the guerrillas. And this was very, very unpopular. Uh, and this led to a lot of dis discontent on the ground. PKK almost <coughs> in practice within a year had completely stopped, abandoned this policy. And that's an example of the PKK going, this is what are my constituency's expectations and demands. I'm not going to push too far and they <coughs> held back. So it's much more the PKK's interaction with its supporters, the, the violence of the counterinsurgency, the mass displacement. And I mean, I, I say it every time, and I mean, I'm sure many of you here are, are very well informed, but you're talking millions of displaced people, potentially more than were displaced in the Yugoslavian conflict in this period. So this is mass turmoil in the region. So it's easy to understand why at an emotional level people would identify with the people who are striving to, uh, would say, defend the Kurdish people. So I think it's less to do with their declared objectives and more to do with the way the conflict evolved over the, 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 the 90s in particular. Thank you, Francis. Let's take some questions from the room. Please, yes, would you mind introducing yourself? Tell us who you are. Thank yes. you, yes. Is it better? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, please. Yeah, my name is Rohat Akshakaya. I'm an LSE, a double degree student in public administration and government. And I was wondering um, to which extent do you think that the situation in Iran where people stating the deeply Kurdish-centered um, narrative of Jinja and Azadi, deeply centered in genealogy and also as a very important pattern of the Kurdish liberal movement might improve or rather legitimize the standing of the PKK or generally legitimize support for the PKK. Um, and also, do you think there might be flashbacks or rather oppressive reactions, especially in Turkey, um, seeing like that the situation of the Kurds, which was horrible in Syria before Rojava, and actually also in Iran, where the situation maybe was the most horrible, where now people acknowledge oppression, uh, oppression and oppressive mechanism towards Kurds uh, might rather strengthen the fear of, of Turkey for Kurdistan by the end of the day. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Just to add, before you take the Iran and the Jinjian Azadi, um, there's another question online about this, that the slogan comes from the PKK or PKK-affiliated groups. It's now synonymous with the uprising in Iran. Any comments on that curious development which you might like to take with the first question on Iran? Uh, super, thanks a lot together. for the question, Rohan. Uh, uh, remarkably, I just listened to a podcast today for yesterday, precisely about this pomegranate podcast where they talked about uh, Jinji and Azadi. And I had been in discussion with some friends of mine, uh, like where did this, when, like when was the first time this, this uh, slogan was used? And if I'm not mistaken, it was around 2006 that it came from 
essentially the PKK milieu. I mean, it's not entirely, you know, I'm not sure exactly where it was uh, emerged from. Uh, I think the, the PKK in a broader sense, the Kurdish movement, if you will, has been growing in strength in Iran in recent years. And it's, I mean, with Pejak, uh, we'll say is one element of it, but I think more broadly, I'm really not an expert. I, I don't know very much about it, but I think there's already long before these current demonstrations and uh, would say, uh, would say protests of the last uh, 40 days, uh, I think that what this, this is, this is a further step to an already uh, developing process. Um, I think uh, it is remarkable in a sense that something that emerges from the, let's say, the, the more radical wing of the Kurdish movement from, let's say, PKK circles, that one of their slogans has become the dominant frame, at least within the, uh, in the Kurdish part of uh, Iran. So I think that is a remarkable development, but I think that also shows, and I think it's also, uh, we'll say, because we'll say the broader Kurdish movement, how it's international legitimacy, how it's like projected itself to the outside world as well, which is because in, at least in the West, I mean, I, I'm from Ireland, I'm not a Kurdish person, how the messages we pick up from the protests there reflect our own interests and our own interests are shaped by the new legitimized understanding of what the PKK is after Rojava. But uh, so I think it is a remarkable development. I've no idea how it's going to develop in the sense. I think that, and I'm sure you've all aware that there has been also a kind of a, oops, a kind of ethnic pushback by, I would say, non-Kurdish Iranians, Say even also, uh, not using the Kurdish name uh, of the of the the, the woman who uh, it's dead kicked it all off. So I think there is. I I'm not sure how this will develop in terms of Kurdish versus the other uh, uh, ethnicities in in Iran. Will the Turkish state be afraid? Uh, I think that the Turkish state is at the moment not uh, knows it's under no military threat in any sense from the the PKK within Turkey's borders. It's much more concerned about. Political mobilization, that's why, I mean, it was just a few, three days ago, there was, I think, a dozen journalists arrested. So the, the Turkish state is not afraid militarily of it. It's afraid of the political movement of the, 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 um, the political wing of the PK, of the Kurd, not the PK, the, P, the Kurdish movement. And I think this would be much more in focus when we're coming up to the elections, which would be next year or the year after, how to try to interfere the Kurdish vote in some way. But it, uh, the Turkish state has zero fear of the... Kurdish movement from a military sense. This is my understanding. Thank you, Francis. The next question is here, and thank you for you as well. Anyone else in the room with a question? Do indicate, please. We've got more online as well to come. Thank you, please. Hi, uh, my name is Mehdi. I'm a PhD student uh, at the IR department here in uh, LSA. And my research also involves partly the uh, Kurdish national identity formation. And I think uh, your book is really beneficial uh, to use uh, also. Um, I want to discuss the um, uh, PKK's relation with the Islamist, uh, the Islamist courts in the in the 90s. So, uh, in my opinion, religion uh, plays a um, is a um, has a big impact on the courts, especially in Turkey. And um, as you already know, there was a conflict between PKK and the Kurdish Hezbollah in the 1990s. Do you think that conflict has reduced the public support? for PKK and my second question is do you think that PKK has learned from that conflict? Super questions thanks uh, I think I think we'll say the fighting with Hezbollah in the, the original eruption in the early 90s died down I, I mean 
I mean, it's more than 20 years ago. And an awful lot has happened in the 20 years in Kurdistan since. Uh, and I think we'll say the framing of Kurdish Islam, Islamism or uh, uh, radical Islam is much more influenced by what happened with ISIS and the conflict, we'll say, in Syria rather than going back to Hezbollah. But of course, as we all know, in the 2000s, uh, we'll say when the, the violence broke out in, in Kobane, when Kobane was under siege, I mean, the Hezbollah and PKKs were back fighting on the streets again in uh, the, in the Arbica. I think the, the BKK recognized that this was a, a divisory tactic. And, it did, and I think if you look at how the PKK, for a Marxist movement, for a movement that is essentially at higher levels, more or less atheist, was very tolerant of Islam at the lower levels. I mean, it's already in the early 90s, they had opened up like parts of the popular front for Islamic Kurds. And then you have, through to more recent times, the Friday prayers in Kurdish. So the, and this, I think, is part of the PKK's pragmatism. It's kind of communicative pragmatism, how it describes itself, how it projects itself. And a thing I found rather interesting during my interviews was that uh, people would tell, I'd, I'd ask them, my interviewees, the people would say, not necessarily people in the movement, but people who were interacting with the movement, like, what did they talk about? Like, what were they discussing when the guerrillas would come into the villages? And they'd talk about Sheikh Said. They wouldn't talk about the international proletariat and uh, the third way socialism or Maoism. They were talking about the struggle, and this is, you know, the Kurdish struggle, with, and putting these religious figures comfortably there to the forefront of the part of the Kurdish struggle. So I think the PK always had a very pragmatic approach, and I think with Hezbollah, they realized that this was a very bloody and very distracting and very, uh, um, uh, I mean, similar, very unfortunate development, we'd say, within the uh, Kurdish society, and that the only people that benefited were the, the, was the Turkish state. How this agreement between Hezbollah and the PKK this presumed agreement that happened at some time around 1995, the exact details around that aren't clear. Mehmet Kurt's book is the best book that talks about it. Uh, but even that, it's not entirely clear how this agreement, and I've heard different, uh, um, but I, I've heard different explanations, but none of them, which are I'm confident enough to reference in a book, for example. Uh, and I mean, I, was, was that the other part of your question? Do you, have a... uh, do you think the PK has learned from this experience? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it learned directly through it. I mean, that's why if you look at very explicitly this kind of Friday prayers initiative, which isn't necessarily a PKK initiative, but it's a broader Kurdish movement. So it is something that they were realized that Kurdish, especially in parts of Kurdistan, or in, let's say, Northern Kurdistan, extremely religious people who are also not in favor of the state, but probably not in favor of Marxism as it would have been in the 1980s. So I think the PKK definitely learned, and it's a, it's a, to be honest, it's a fascinating dynamic of how the PKK mobilized uh, so a Marxist movement mobilizing extremely religious uh, communities and mobilizing their daughters and getting the the, the, the female, the, the gender dimension of the PKK. So, I mean, that's, to be honest, unheard of uh, at, at that scale in any uh, Islamic society today, at least that I know. Mm. Yeah, do follow up with Mehmet Kurd. He was at LSE until recently. He's now at Royal Holloway. I think he's teaching there. I know his book. Yeah, he's, he's very friendly. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Uh, let's take a couple online before we come to you. Uh, we've got a question from Aronia Chetankayash. Question is, would you say that the PKK is an obstacle for the Kurdish question to be raised to a greater extent in international politics, especially as it is considered a terrorist group by NATO? So maybe take the terrorist yeah, international I mean, question. Uh, I mean, the short answer would be no, because I think that the, the Kurdish question wouldn't exist today with the level of prominence that it has without the, the PKK, or without its affiliated uh, movements in Syria. 
I mean, I don't think the Kurdish question would be in any way in international consciousness. And I mean, you can even look at that and if you look, look at who wrote about the Kurds in the 60s, 70s, nobody wrote about the Kurds. I mean, you, the odd anthropology history book, international, it, I mean, it's very easy for the West. I mean, they could be the same condition as the Balochis in Pakistan, ignored and not seen. So I don't think, so I think the PKK has led to a Kurdish revival. I mean, for better or worse, I understand that there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's, there's many reasons you can object to the PKK and the things that it's done. But without the PKK, the Kurdish, Kurdish society, Kurdish question wouldn't exist to the same level of prominence. Uh, the question of its terrorism is, I mean, the West was very, very pragmatic in supporting and arming a so-called terrorist movement when it was in its benefit in Syria. Mm -hmm. And uh, terrorism is a designation. I mean, that can be changed from one day to the next. I mean, this, it, I don't think it will be changed. I think, I don't think it's a helpful designation to, to, uh, to resolving the question, but uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't, I think without the PKK that the Kurdish question would really fragment and not completely fall from international attention. Thank you. Another one online um, from Ekrem Karakoc. Thank you for your question. The question is, how was the PKK able to increase its support amongst Kurdish society from 1984 to present? Well, it's the whole book, really. What have been the strategies of the PKK for societal support or the Turkish state's policies that inadvertently increase support for the PKK amongst Kurds? That's an interesting angle. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the question says a lot as well. I mean, there's a, some of the answers are already in the question in the sense that mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's in the book. You can, I, I, there's micro strategies of mobilization. How the PKK mobilized before the coup? They did things like through teachers' unions. They and then a lot of its early members were teachers, and teachers got small villages all over the countryside. Teachers then recruited their own students, and then those students, that was that person's family, would then be affiliated to the movement because their child was arrested, gone to the mountains, and so on. So there's million. The, the book is. I have a lot of pragmatic explanations of it. How it won support again? It's part of this. Because if you look at the 1970s and late 1970s in Turkey and Kurdistan, there was dozens of revolutionary movements. And some of them much, much bigger than the PKK. And they've all, they all disappeared. I mean, they're in some coffee houses in Bochum and places. That's it. They don't exist as political forces anymore. These are after the diaspora. So the PKK avoided the ideological dogmatism of some of these movements. And I think this is one of the reasons. And I, I mean, this is the whole book, really, how it leads to its... It, this because it was flexible and how it interacted with Kurdish society, it could keep it, it could embed itself deeper than movements that would have taken a more ideologically specific role. Then, I mean, it, while its practices of violence were often quite popular, so before the coup, targeting landlords who were very uh, not not a pre, just exploiters of local Kurdish people, this was popular and this is violent. So it's not that they just did non-violent practices. Some of the violent practices that they enacted were popular. So there's, these are other aspects of it. And then the other whole point, and I mean, this is, I say it somewhere in the book that this constituency PKK relationship doesn't explain everything. This, this is only part of the story. And the other big part of the story is the counterinsurgency. It's the coup. It's the coup in 1980 where the, you can go to any, you meet anyone who's, I don't know, over 50, and they, they can tell you exactly what happened in their villages, in their town, the days of the coup, and who was the humiliations and the, the suffering of the people who were arrested and detained. This is the first part of the creating an emotional environment that facilitated support for the PKK. Then this continued through the village guards who used their links to the state to engage in all sorts of local rivalries and criminality against other communities. And then you, it extends on to the big counterinsurgency of the 1990s with millions of people displaced, tens of tens and tens of thousands of dead uh, civilians 
guerrillas and imprisoned people. There's there's thousands of Kurdish prisoners, 20, 30 years, are still in prison. I mean, there's a reason why Kurdish people have continued to support the movement, notwithstanding, we'll say, the, the hardship that it brings. And this is part of how the Turkish state has interacted with it. And then the one window of opportunity that like, everyone was really enthusiastic about the, the Nevro's address from Ojalan and then the Hadepe's uh, successes, there's a brief window. And when it didn't really fit to the Turkish establishment's objectives, that was shut down. And the only, I mean, there's no hope in Kurdistan. At the, I mean, I'm very sorry to say it, but there doesn't seem to be any hope for the Kurdish community in Turkey. Very pressing. Thank you. Um, there's another question in the room. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. And yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yes. Uh, thank you. Hi. I'm uh, a master uh, politics of Middle East student at uh, SOAS. And I have a question about, like, you mentioned a little bit, but I ask you if you can a little bit expand uh, about the relation between uh, the PKK and the Kurdish that now are, like, in the west part of Turkey, especially in the cities, if there is any relation between them and in which way they maintain their uh their links and their relationship with the pkk uh yeah super i uh so uh thanks lorenzo uh i actually have an article i wrote and it's in kurdish studies precisely and what like no one really takes my concept that i invented <laughs> seriously but it's like an internal diaspora so these are so the argument about diasporas is that the diaspora tends to be more radical because they don't suffer the consequences of the homeland you know it's easy for irish americans to support the ira in the 90s and the 80s because they lived in boston uh, but when you look at Kurds in Western Turkey, they have all of the, they are like a diaspora, they're out of their homeland, but they have the exact same exposure to threat from the Turkish state. So it's a, it's kind of a curious type of diaspora. Um, the, for, um, so the, uh, so I, I go through a lot in the book, and it's a, a part that I, I, I like, to be honest, uh, self-praise. I like this part of the book myself, that it's how the PKK mobilized there is extremely interesting. Uh, so this initial wave of mobilization was with uh, students, uh, mostly students from Kurdistan who were studying in different universities in Istanbul and Ankara. So these were guys who were extremely well informed of the conflict. These were people from Kurdistan directly and they started to mobilize and then the PKK uh, put in place structures after the demonstrations had spontaneously erupted in Istanbul University and places like that. And from that, then they used to have intensive, like these young recruits were trained intensively uh, and like ideology and so on for like two weeks, 10 days. And then they were sent out to these enormous neighborhoods of generally poor Kurds around the peripheries of Istanbul, Ankara and places like that. And then they just kind of took advantage, I don't want to say took advantage in a negative sense, but they took the despair of the conditions of people, Kurdish people living in these neighborhoods. And it was, I mean, commanders from the Ernike who I interviewed, they explained that it was, relatively easy to recruit these guys because life was extremely hard in Istanbul. They had no economic prospects. They often had no familial prospects because they didn't have any great wealth or whatever. And then you had uh, this no, like this rising anti-Kurdishness. So at least if you lived in Kurdistan, you were surrounded by Kurds for the most part. But if you lived, if you spoke, and, and I mean, there's many of you here are Kurdish, you don't know all these stories that like speaking Kurdish in Istanbul, you get beat up. You, you speak Kurdish in the Dalmush, your mother gets her groceries thrown onto the street, things like this. So these are all factors which facilitated the PKK's uh, recruitment and winning support in Western Turkey. And it was also very strategic that it, it did use violence in Western Turkey. Uh, and some of like uh, certain bomb attacks and so on against the targets, which would um, pretty, I mean, you know, uh, bloody uh, incidents. 
but it, it, it was very strategic to take people from the, from the west of Turkey for the insurgency in Kurdistan. They didn't ever open a front or a, a, an extended campaign of violence in Western Turkey. So this was a strategic decision taken by the PKK, which allowed it to use, and again, this is my argument, use the margins of, let's say, its support to strengthen, let's say, its campaign. So these are the, take areas where there was little kind of Kurdish mobilization, gather it up and funnel it back to the mountains to continue to struggle there. So I think it's one of the key reasons why the PKK, because as everyone, you know, all these kind of, the, like, kind of statement, like that Istanbul is the biggest Kurdish city and so on, and it's true, there's millions of Kurds live there. So if if you just simply ignore them, you'd be it'd be you know it wouldn't make any sense that this is where Kurds live, and the Kurds that live there are people who are many, not all of course, displaced or economic victims at the least from the conflict. So I mean they have a, a, an openness at least to a political engagement with the Kurdish question, and some of them in a revolutionary engagement. Thank you, Francis. And let's see the question over by the window, please. Thank you very much. And we've got another one in the room, and then we have three more online if anyone else has a question do please indicate thank you very much anyone else online listening watching please pop your question in the q a box if you have one uh, we've got about 13 14 minutes left thank you please thank you thank you for this book francis um i, I always find it interesting that um the question of terrorism comes up and the designation so thank you for your response but i also wanted to very quickly make the point that as you said, just to just for the further point of when the US and NATO decided that some of the parties in South Kurdistan and northern Iraq were going to be their allies and they were going to help establish autonomy in South Kurdistan, the KDP and the PUK were still listed as foreign terrorist organizations in the US. So the US that's never really stopped the US and NATO when they decide on something. But I wanted to ask not about ter the terrorist designation, but um, it, I would be interested to know how you navigated the criminalization while you were carrying out your research in Turkey. You know, the PKK is perhaps after, you know, I mean, I guess socially, culturally, the Armenian question is still like one of the highest points of racism in Turkey, but um, the, you know, the point of the PKK is probably the most criminalized in obviously Turkey and also other parts of the world. So how did you navigate that while also trying to carry out, you know, meaningful and quality research? Thank you. A great question. And I'll point you to, because uh, it's my second time at the Middle East Center, that uh, an edited volume on Kurdish methodologies came out in 2019. And uh, I have a chapter in it with one of my, uh, my, academic collaborators, my friend, uh, Simi Celik, and we describe exactly how, how we navigated fieldwork in Kurdistan. Uh, and the first point, what the first point is the fieldwork I did then, like as an Irish guy wandering around, obviously not a local, um, it was a very different time there. I mean, there was still a high level of conflict there. I mean, there was a lot of fighting happening, but there was, it was clear there was, it was the conflict at the time was moving in a more positive direction and you could do fieldwork then that you couldn't do now. And I think that's a first point. So I was, in a sense, really lucky that I happened to be doing my research at the time that I did it. And uh, essentially, I, I mean, of course, it's extremely dangerous for people to, I mean, everyone knows the stories of academics, people who've been arrested for academic research or any whatever projection of support for terrorism that the Turkish state might decide. So it is dangerous. And a lot of people choose not to speak with me. 
I mean, I had many more rejections of people for interviews than I had people who agreed to interviews, which is completely correct. I mean, that's absolutely acceptable. It's saying that it's acceptable. But I had uh, really good people who worked with me, whose people whose names aren't on the book for the obvious reasons of security and so on, with Kurdish friends of mine, some Turkish friends of mine. We worked together. Uh, it was a slow process. It took me a long time. A lot of meeting people in Germany, so people got to know me. So I had a bit of trust built up with parts of the Kurdish movement who then sent me to Kurdistan to meet different people and I was recommended. And these people know how to avoid, to stay as safe as possible. I mean, it's not for me as a person who's done you know, ethics and field work, the seminars, these guys know what's happening. They know exactly how the field works, what's acceptable to do, what's not to do. And those, they, these people told me. Then of course they take all the, academic, the standard uh, approaches. You know, don't use their names, leave out identifying details. They don't travel with notes through uh, police uh, checkpoints or through the airport. You know, all these standard and extremely, extremely important, I should say. I don't, I don't mean to seem like I'm being dismissive of it, but it was much more the people who I interviewed were the people who set the limits of what would, also what would be discussed. I mean, I also learned very quickly things that you should talk, that you can talk about and things that you can talk about to, to maintain this kind of relationship of trust. So to give a concrete example, especially with dealing with the Kurdish movement in, in, the, in the diaspora, talking about finance and things like that, that's very sensitive. And then I quickly learned that and I never talked, I mean, it wasn't part of my PhD or my research anyways, but that was something that you learn really quickly not to talk about because it kind of makes people a little bit awkward. So I'd say there's this chapter with me in this, the, I think, under our Kurdish methodologies and Kurdish studies, it's something, uh, like, I don't know, maybe Palgrave, I'm not sure. But there's, really, there's lo and not just my chapter, there's those really good, really, really nice chapters. So I'd recommend if you're interested in that part. Thank you. Another question in the room at the back, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mohamed Hajali. I'm a senior fellow at Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. Thank you very much, Francis and, and Robert, for this uh, interesting and enlightening um, talk. I, I was just wondering whether you can tell us a little bit how you know the organization withstood the um, the absence of its charismatic leader, Apple. And and how uh, and whether you see anything unique in this organization and and structure and um, uh, basically its networks um, that you think it's you know to be noted. Just thank you. Um, will you take the answer, survey? I, I mean, this is okay. that this is the, the big question on uh, in the study of the Kurdish movement. And we, I assume, I, yesterday I did a presentation in Exeter University, and there's a similar question and a comment that, I mean, because Ojalan, oh, he's the biggest figure, he's like, he's, he looms over everything in the Kurdish movement, but I mean, he's also, there isn't really, an, uh, there isn't at least, a, my knowledge, an authoritative biography of Ojalan. So it's kind of a, an area where we don't know as much about the figure of Ojalan as we know his writings and so on, but it's kind of an area that's it's hard to discuss because he obviously has a very much a, uh, symbolic importance and emotional importance and he's a unifying figure for the Kurdish movement and it's it's hard at times to critically with for Kurdish people will say involved in the movement to, criti to critically engage with the role of Ojalan in the movement because people tend to be more defensive and I also understand that as a perspective but uh, I would argue that the <coughs> Ojalan was kind of always an absent figure we'll say from the the, the fighting of the, the the insurgency of the movement he was in Lebanon he was in Syria while the conflict was developed and these decisions that I talk about where the guerrilla units on the ground stopped 
enforced conscription. That wasn't an, uh, an Ojalan decision in a sense. So I would shift the emphasis more to the practices on the ground and how they evolved in coordinate or in would say in the dynamic with their uh, support networks. It would be one of the reasons why I would, which I would emphasize more in terms of their support. Uh, after Ojalan's arrest, um, I mean, he's been elevated. I mean, there's lots of literature that discusses he's been elevated above the party. Uh, it's probably got disadvantages for the movement, but it also has a unifying advantage, uh, 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 let's say, features of it, which allows people to essentially project whatever their vision of Kurdistan is onto the leadership, and that kind of keeps the movement more coherent. So I think in the last years, and that's not, and then of course, this is parallel with his new ideological program, which has been much appreciated and implemented by a large part of the Kurdish movement. So I think he's, the role of Ojalan is even, is something that remains understudied in the, the looking at the Kurdish movement. Uh, but I think during, while he was in Lebanon and Syria, a lot of the developments on the ground kind of operated a little bit independently. You know, this micro level, what I'm talking about, this thickening of the social ties between the movement and its supporters, that kind of happened not necessarily true Ojalan. And then after his arrest and detention, he became a, a symbolic sacrificial figure, which allows say more diffuse elements of the broader Kurdish movement to unify. Thank you, Francis. We've got three more questions online. I think we've got one in the room. Great, we'll go I'll, take I'll those my answers. Now you're fine, thank you, We'll go to um, Renan Akivash. Thank you for your question. It's about the Kurdish opening, which you mentioned earlier between the AKP government and the PKK in the early 2010s. AKP seems to have completely shot down PKK's expressive channels in public since then. This stems from the full capture of the media currently in Turkey. Uh, I think as a result of this, do you find there's been any change in the support of the PKK? Uh, I mean, it's very, very hard. There is no way to measure, per se, support of uh, an armed movement. It's a difficult thing to measure. Uh, I mean, there is some people who've done like some survey work and so on uh, on it. Uh, so I don't have empirical. So what I thought was my impression. I'm, I don't think, uh, and I haven't done field work there for a long time. So, but my impression is that the support for the PKK remains strong. There, there's probably ups and downs. I think the the, the fighting in the cities was a, a kind of a tricky point for the PKK. This wasn't something that was universally uh, supported by large parts of Kurdish society, but I think uh, it, it remains relatively constant. Uh, if you look in parallel to say support for Kurdish parliamentary parties, that has remained at this kind of relatively high level since. So I, I think that the PKK remains, has a lot of support still in Turkey, but it, to measure that is quite... Uh, well, that links beautifully to the next question, which is about Kurdish political representation in the country. And do you have any comments on the ideological or administrative differences between the People's Democratic Party, HDP, and current PKK? Uh, another great question. I mean, it's really, um, and it's another part of the thing that isn't particularly well developed. And I mean, there's a reason for that, because the Turkish state says that all of these Kurdish political parties are supports of terrorism. And... It's, it's very difficult to maintain your ethical obligations as a, a researcher or a scholar uh, to describe the nuances of this relationship. I mean, because they are separate. They are not, there isn't a control relationship. The message doesn't come from Candle to tell the Hadipe what to do in their elections, but you have a massive overlap in terms of your brothers in the mountains, your, your, your sisters in the parliament. You have this kind of relationship and that's very nuanced, but it can easily be instrumentalized for coercion by the Turkish state, if you know what I mean. So I think that's probably a reason why it's not addressed very explicitly in a lot of the literature. I think there is uh, naturally tensions between 
a parliamentary tendency and a, an armed revolutionary movement. And you have two very charismatic leaders uh, who, I mean, in general, two charismatic leaders, at least two charismatic leaders with Ojalan and uh, Demirtas, that wouldn't necessarily, that I can well envisage that there could be tensions between them if in a different, you know, in a different situation where they were both mm -hmm. out of the mm -hmm. uh, prison. So it's a complicated relationship, but I think the level of repression of the parliamentary the institutional, completely non-violent Kurdish parliamentary party would have pushed the, the, would have made the divisions between the revolutionary and the institutional uh, tendencies within the Kurdish movement smaller rather than bigger. So I think there's probably more cooperation than ever between them. Thank you. And the last question we have from our online audience. Is Potential from... for cooperation, I should say. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim has to ask, can you please touch upon financial aspects too? PKK expanded its legal illegal structure particularly since early 2000, how have PKK finances assisted the armed struggle against the state? What are the sources of its funding? I mean, this is also, I mean, I just mentioned in the previous question, this is something that's difficult to access. Uh, I mean, the, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much money they get and where do they get it from. Um, I mean, they do, uh, there has, has been, there is and continues to be a form of revolutionary taxation, if you want to call it that, extortion, whichever way you wish to the, frame it, uh, amongst the Kurdish diaspora, Kurdish business and diaspora, and within Turkey and within Kurdistan. Uh, there's probably a degree of taxation and smuggling of all sorts of everything that goes across the borders. I imagine the, the Kurdish movement has some, knows what's going on there. But I mean, I really don't, I mean, of course you have reports from the Turkish state and they're difficult to take very credibly. You have reports from European security forces to Interpol, but they just kind of reflect what the Turkish state is saying in the first case. So uh, the PKK, it's, it was never a particularly rich organization. If you compare it to other forms of uh, other international insurgent movements, and I mean, you can see that even by the reliance it had on villagers, you know, uh, living very sparsely. I mean, they live in caves in the north of Kurdistan. It's in the mountains of uh, South Kurdistan. This isn't a movement with massive expenses they don't have, apart from Rojava, they've never had a very expansive uh, weaponry. You don't have, they don't have heavy weapons, which are expensive. So it's a relatively low cost insurgency, but I, I genuinely, and I, this isn't some kind of refusing to answer the question. I, I don't know data, which I could reliably say that this is where the PKK has its money, how it gets its money, but it's variations of taxation, voluntary donations, business fronts, and probably some degree of in intimidation. I mean, it's a it's a hard to know, and I don't have the data, so I really. It's, it's not, I'm, I say I'm not trying to avoid the question, but it's just hard to make an authoritative statement one way or the other. Sure, thank you. Last question from the back of the room. Thank you, please. Hello, uh, my name is Polat. Uh, I am a visiting researcher student at IR department, uh, and I'm from Turkey. Um, actually, I'm a bit biased about PKK, but I'm not biased about Kurds. Uh, what I want to ask is, um, the PKK also involves in some uh, violence against civilians, uh, as I myself uh, uh, experienced in my own state in Ankara. And they're also involved in uh, drug trafficking, uh, arms smuggling and uh, use of 
child soldiers in Syria, according to Human Rights Watch. Uh, so do you think that it uh, fills the nationalism within Turkey and uh, they make them lose support among Kurds? in turkey thank you very much by the way uh, your book seems very interesting i will definitely read it thank you so thanks Alpola, for the question and i think it's a fair question and uh, i actually have an article that i wrote with a friend of mine called uh, juan masuyo on the pkk targeting of civilians and there ha i mean sometimes like maybe we need to be more explicit about it but i mean i work on civil wars and armed movements and insurgencies and these are violent movements who do violent things um which is i mean it's taken for granted and uh, i mean i it, it has to be clear that this is what we're what i work on and what i study is terrible i mean this is this is in terms of violent victims of violence on all sides and to the extent of the perpetrators of violence in another way i mean this is very this is a horrible social phenomenon uh uh the pkk has but to push back against your question turkish nationalism is Turkey is probably one of the most nationalist countries that exists. It was, it was nationalistic before the, the PKK and it was nationalistic when they were massacring Greeks in 1950s. And this is, it is a nationalistic society. So has the PKK made it worse? Maybe. Has, is the PKK and the broader Kurdish, in, we'll say mobilization of the 1970s, that is a, that is a, a reaction to Turkish nationalism. I mean, the rebellions of the, of the 1920s are directly in opposition to the enforced notion of who's a Turk and who's not a Turk. And if, from the opposite perspective, if the Turkish state had made concessions and accepted that there's a plurality of peoples and religions within the Turkish state, maybe the PKK would never have got this kind of popular resonance that it's had. In terms of, and it, I mean, we, it's a debate that happens all the time, which would say, especially for me, I don't use the language of terrorism. Uh, I mean, I do other research on lone actors where I am more comfortable to use it, but um, every arm movement that exists, every movement, no matter how well-liked, does acts which would be, in a general understanding of terrorism, target civilians. The PKK has done that. It has put bombs in tourist resorts. It has targeted people uh, in what would be kind of considered terrorism. The Turkish state, on the other hand, has done exactly the same. And the village guards have done exactly the same. And Hezbollah have done exactly the same. So if we get into, in, from my perspective, if I get into the discourse then of saying, this is a terrorist organization, this is a, then everything is terrorism. Then if everything is terrorism, it has no conceptual value as a way to understand the conflict. So at no point would I underestimate the, the, the violence inflicted by the Kurdish movement, also within itself, would say within the, the centers and so on. But this, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that helps at least from my perspective, understand better the, how the conflict the, the, uh, evolved. Uh, and the one other thing I would say is that I do think, and it would be interesting to look at how political views of Turkish conscripts who had to, I mean, these are just normal everyday Turkish young guys were sent with poorly trained to fight in Kurdistan, what impact that had on their political views. I mean, it could be something, it could be relatively easily done as a project. So do soldiers become more right-wing do they become more Turkish nationalists? Do they hate Kurds more? Or how, I mean, or does some type of empathy for the situation develop there? Which is not, not research that I know exists, which would be something I imagine would be quite interesting. But I think Tur all nationalism are in a dynamic. Irish, British nationalism, I mean, Irish nationalism is shaped by British nationalism. And in the north of Ireland, unionist identity, I mean, I'm from Ireland, just to give the Irish example, 
uh, unionism and loyalism is shaped by the, an Irish nationalist identity. So there, it's always a dialectic between the two. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, to be clear, I think Turkish nationalism was the, the founding nationalism within the, the state. <laughs> Come back to talk about Irish nationalism another time. Francis, thank you so much. It's been an amazing area. Thanks a lot, everyone.